The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. I want to welcome you today to the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. This podcast is an outreach of Zion Primitive Baptist Church, which is located in the Zion community near Gordo, Alabama. I'm Elder Chris McCool, and I serve as pastor of Zion Primitive Baptist Church. We are a congregation of believers in the sovereign grace of God where families worship together through the simple practice of preaching, praying, and singing. If you live in this area or are visiting here, we would love to have you attend worship services with us. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. and the first and third Wednesday evenings at 6.30 p.m. I'm happy to note that our daily podcast is featured on Grace Alone Radio, which you can find at gracealoneradio.net. You can find the schedule on the website, and you can also download an app to your phone so that you can listen wherever you are. Grace Alone Radio is a 24-hour streaming service which carries the message of God's sovereign grace around the clock and around the world. Zion Primitive Baptist Church is located at 9487 County Road 49, Gordo, Alabama. That's near the intersection of County Road 49 and Alabama Highway 159, about 10 miles north of Gordo, Alabama, and about 8 miles northeast of Reform, Alabama. If you're interested in finding more sermons, you can go to our website at zionpbc.com, that's z-i-o-n-p-b-c.com, where you'll find all of our posted sermons as well as a link to subscribe to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our website which will update you every time a new sermon is posted. Scholars and theologians have identified four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. These are simply passages that point us clearly to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and describe certain aspects of his nature and work. The first of these songs is found in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. I've chosen to call this song the Song of the Chosen Servant. Today's message begins to deal with this first song and points us to some very important aspects of the nature and the work of Christ. Join us as we begin looking at these servant songs of Isaiah, which I believe will give us some keen insight into the coming Messiah whom we know as the Lord Jesus Christ. But first, we have a song selection that I hope you enjoy. After the song, please stay tuned for another message of God's sovereign grace from the Zion Primitive Baptist Church pulpit.
Isaiah, there are four servant songs. Now, those are just passages that stand out to us who, looking back on it, understand that they're pointing towards something more than just what they saw around them in that day. And these four servant songs are clearly pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. I realize we're going to jump into Isaiah in the 42nd chapter today, and and there's a whole context there that you ought to go back and read. Isaiah is a a really good book because Isaiah is many in so many places. Isaiah points us to the coming Messiah. In fact, the book of Isaiah is almost a mirror of the Bible itself. There are 66 chapters of Isaiah. Um, There are 66 books in the Bible. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah primarily deal with sin and judgment and promised judgment upon the sin of Israel, beginning in the, and that's the first 39 chapters of the Bible. The Old Testament, uh, of course, gives us the law and God's judgment upon sin. Beginning in the 40th chapter and through the end of the book, we begin to read about, in fact, the very first verse in the 40th chapter is, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. And we begin to deal with comfort and compassion and mercy that, of course, we know was fulfilled in Christ. Kind of like the New Testament that began to tell us about the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So it's a great book just in general to study. But in this book, as I said, there are, there are four servant songs, little passages that, that are, uh, mo- all of them are quoted to some extent or another in the New Testament, and they point us to the suffering servant that we know is the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, some of the scholars, uh, the Bible scholars say, well, these are talking about uh, they're written by somebody else. You know, there's a whole, uh, there's a whole uh, uh, body of scholarship that says that Isaiah was written by two different people and one of them was after the, uh, the Babylonian captivity, one of them was before. Well, I just want to tell you, the book of Isaiah was written by Isaiah, but it was inspired by the Lord and the problem the scholars have is they can't understand how Daniel or uh, uh, Isaiah or somebody that's just a mortal man can forecast the future so exactly. Well, we know the answer to that is that the Lord already knew and inspired them to write what was coming. And, of course, it came to pass just like they prophesied. But in these servant songs, we find sweet forecasts of the Lord Jesus Christ. And today I want to look at the first song. This is the song that's found in chapter 42. There's one in chapter 49, there's one in chapter 50, and then the fourth one is uh, chapters about midway of chapter 52 all the way through the end of chapter 53. It's the longest of the four. But today's song, the one I want to look at this morning, is the first song, and I'm calling this the Song of the Chosen Servant. The Song of the Chosen Servant. That's my title. Somebody else might have a better title. But it's the Song of the Chosen Servant. So let's begin reading in chapter 42 there in verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Thus saith God the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and and that which cometh out of it, He that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another. Neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Now, you might, some might cut it off at verse 7, some at verse 9. I decided to go down through verse 9, but that's the first servant song in Isaiah. And as I said, it's pointing us to the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now certainly he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But in his person and work here on this earth, he was the suffering servant. You notice he didn't come riding in Jerusalem on a big white horse with armor, plate armor and swords and, and at the head of an army. He rode into Jerusalem on, on a little donkey, the colt, the foal of an ass. He, he, was, he was very meek and lowly when he was here the first time, born into a stable, laid into a feed trough. 
and grew up just like any other baby grew up there in Jerusalem in that day. He suffered all the same physical uh, ailments. I don't know if he ever got sick or, or if he stubbed his toe. I don't know all those details, but I will tell you this. We're told in the book of Hebrews that he suffered, he, he, he was familiar with every infirmity that we have. So when I get the stomach virus, <laughs> and which is the bane of my existence, let me just say, I hate that worse than anything else. But I know the Lord can sympathize. He can empathize. I don't know if he had it, but he knows what it's like to have it. Because he was a man, just like me, except without the sin nature, you see. So let's talk about this song of the chosen servant. Notice, he, the Lord Jesus Christ, was selected for the task that was set before him. Look at verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect. Mine elect. Look at his identity. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 12, you'll see in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 17 that there is no doubt who this is talking about. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 17, uh, after Jesus has been preaching to them and he's, he's, uh, uh, he's healed on the Sabbath day and, and, he, and, and we're told that he charged them not to make this thing known, verse 17, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. That's what the word elect means. It means to choose. It's someone who's been chosen. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. And he goes on all the way down through verse 21, teaching us that this is a messianic reference. This is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the elect, the choice one, the chosen one. It's not just that, that he was chosen and he was just like everybody else. He is the choice one. He's the best of the lot. He's the pick of the litter, if you will, as we might say today. Not that there was any litter to pick from because the Lord Jesus Christ was the only one. He was the only one to fit that category. If the Lord had gone, you know, the Lord made Adam and placed Adam in the garden in a perfect environment. People today think, well, if you can just... Put man in the right environment, he'll, he'll excel. His human nature will get better and better if you just fix the environment, fix, fix his social conditions. Beloved, Adam was in the best environment, the best social conditions that there's ever been. And look what he did. He fell. He ate of the fruit there. But the Lord Jesus Christ was the chosen one. He, actually, you might say he was the first elect of God. He was the first elect. And that's why it says over in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 that, that, that those that he foreknew are predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not bringing him down to the level of every other child of God out there, but I'm pointing out the fact that he is our leader. He is the first among many brethren. He is the chosen one. God chose him God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit got together before the foundation of the world and God the Son was the one who was designated to come down and do the work that no other human being or no other entity could do notice that it says he's mine elect in whom my soul delighteth in whom my soul delighteth that word delighteth comes from a primitive root word in Hebrew meaning to be pleased with and specifically to satisfy a debt. I think that's very appropriate, isn't it? To satisfy a debt. 
God was pleased with his work because it satisfied the debt that was owed by his elect children. Isn't that something? He said, this is mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. Now, that's such a sweet statement there because that same word delighteth is the same word used about God's other children. In Psalm 149 and verse 4, where he says, the Lord taketh pleasure in his people. That's that same Hebrew word. He delights in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Now, he doesn't take pleasure in us in our natural state. He doesn't take pleasure in us when we're his enemies because we were his enemies before we were born again. He doesn't take pleasure in that aspect of us, but he takes pleasure in us so much that he sent to the earth the one that his soul delighted in the most, his co-head, co-part of the Trinity, the God, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sent him down here. Now, I want to point out something very that you might miss that's kind of subtle, but... But it's, it's awful, but it's glorious. Notice what he said. He said, this is the one, in, he said, in whom my soul delighteth. And yet, on the cross, the Lord poured out all of his wrath upon the shoulders, upon the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was, I don't know how it works. I, don't, I can't explain it all, but I know this. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The one in whom his soul delighted, he forsook on the cross. He forsook him. And so now I realize God is, uh, God the Son is God, and God the Father is God, and God the Holy Spirit is God, and they are one. I don't understand, I don't even pretend to understand how that happened, but I just know what the Lord Jesus Christ cried out on the cross. And this is the one in whom his soul delighted. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice his obedience. Notice his obedience. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Notice here, the very first statement is, Behold my servant. My servant. That's the... That's the Hebrew word for a, a household slave, a household servant. And what this just simply means is, is that this servant means that he was in complete harmony with the will of his master. The servant, the slave, had to be in complete harmony. He didn't have an independent will that he could go his own way and the master could say, I want you to go do this. But the servant said, well, I don't want to do that. I want to do something else. See, even in the earthly relationship of master and servant, same thing today we might say in, in a supervisor and someone that he's supervising. You don't have the op option to say, well, I know you're the supervisor. I know you're my boss, but I want to do it my way instead of your way. That'll get you fired. <laughs> That'll get you fired. And in that day, in the master-servant relationship, the servant did not have a will independent of the master to where that he could go do something opposite. Well, in the case of Christ, he's not a slave but rather he is one who is in complete harmony with the will of the one that sent him. This is not saying that Jesus is some kind of slave. He's somehow lesser than God. What he's pointing out to these people who would understand that is that the Lord Jesus Christ, this suffering servant, his will was in complete harmony with the master's will, the, the one who sent him, the, the God, the father. In the case of Christ, as I said, he's not a slave, but he's one who is in complete harmony with the will of God, the father. You remember what 
Jesus said over in John, the sixth chapter, in the 37th verse, He said, All that the Father giveth me shall come unto me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. We love that verse, and I do. It's a precious verse to go to. It tells us that every single one of those that he died for on the cross will be with him. There's none. All that were given unto him in the covenant of grace will come to him in the new birth, and they will not be cast out. But notice the next verse, verse 38 says, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will. Wait a minute. This is Christ the Lord. He's... He's the second person of the Godhead. Is he not doing his own will? Well, he's not doing his own will in the sense of his will being different from that of God the Father. Certainly his will matches up exactly with God the Father's will. He says, I didn't come down to heaven to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. He came down here to do exactly what the Father sent him to do. And i let you in on a little secret. I'm getting ahead of myself here, but he did it. <laughs> He did it, okay? Isn't that glorious? We're going to see that. He did it. But understand that when he came, the, God, the Godhead was in perfect harmony about what he came to do. God the Father sent him, God the Son, to save his people from their sins. Notice he goes on to say, This is the, will of the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up again at the last day. Isn't that glorious? You know, I'm so thankful the will of God wasn't, son, I want you to go down there and see how many you can save. See how many you can talk into coming around to the right way of thinking and making the right choices and living in the right way. Doing enough good works to outweigh the bad, holding on or letting go, whatever, praying through, outrunning the devil, try to get, a, get them in a race and see if they can run hard and fast. That's not what he did. He sent him down here that he might lose nothing of that which God the Father had given him before the foundation of the world. Praise God. And I know, let me just stop here and say, I know this is, this is, these are some difficult concepts in a way, at least they are to me. Because I'm sitting here talking about God the Son, who is fully God. And I'm saying that His will... Uh, he didn't do his own will, but the will of him that sent me. I, I, it's hard to divide that rightly, but let me just say it this way. When he's making these statements, what he's saying is this. I didn't come down here to do something different than the rest of the Godhead wanted me to do. I am in perfect harmony with them. You see, even though he's called a servant, he, he was fully God. But the reason he could be called a servant is because there was no point at which in any way his will would violate the will of the Father. It would be just like a master and a servant situation. It would just be like a master and a slave sending someone to do the will and that servant would do exactly what he said. And that's the point here is that the Lord Jesus Christ was on the same page. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 2 verse 5. He said, let this mind be in you. See, that's where we're supposed to be. We ought to be in the same way. We're, we're, we ought to be the servants of God. Now, we're not God, so there's many way, times in which our will does not uh, line up with that of the Father. We still got that old nature within us that's an enemy of God. I tell you, I've been struggling with it this week. I've been gone since Tuesday. <laughs> and then when I got home, my wife was gone. She didn't even wait around to see me, you know. <laughs> Poor pitiful me yesterday. I'm, what am I going to do? Thank the Lord for dear church members like Sister Lee and Brother Bob too. But Sister Lee invited me to come eat supper with them because you know, I didn't have anything to eat. I opened the pantry and all I had was a candy bar. You know, it's like, man, I don't have anything here. I'm just poor pitiful me. My, you know, I should have been staying in the Word. And, of course, I, I did prepare for today and I was studying. But 
But my will doesn't always line up with the will of God. But he says, it ought to, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being the, in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. If I got here today, got up here today, and God forbid I ever even think this, and said, hey, I'm equal with God. I mean, first of all, you ought to run me out of the pulpit and never ask me back. But beyond that, if I got up, there, got up here and said that, I would be robbing the glory of God. I would be, it would be an attempted robbery. I would be calling myself equal with God. I'd be committing the spiritual crime of attempted robbery, but not Jesus. He, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. You know why he thought it not robbery to be equal with God? Because he and the Father were one. He is God, you see. But notice that even though he was God, it says he made himself of no reputation and took on him the form of a servant. That's what we're talking about here. For all intents and purposes, if you saw the Lord Jesus Christ here on this earth when he was walking this earth as a man, you would say he's the servant of God. Even though he was God, he humbled himself. He made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being and found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I preached a message recently about how that we read in the book of Hebrews he was so much better than the angels and yet he was a little lower than the angels. And those aren't contradictory terms. He was God. God is so much better than the angels, but in his humanity, in his willingness to condescend, to become of the seed, to be made of the seed of Abraham, he became a little lower than the angels in one respect, and that is because therefore he could submit himself to death. The angels can't die, but Christ became a little lower in the sense that he could and did die on the cross. Of course, he didn't stay dead. So he was obedient. He was a servant, okay? And notice, though, notice his qualifications here to do the job that God sent him to do. Look at the qualifications. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold. Whom I uphold. So God says, This servant, this suffering servant, is qualified to do the job that I'm sending him to do. Because I uphold him. Now, let me just say to you and I, each of us here humans, human beings that aren't God, if God upholds us, we can do anything in this world. I, I, I've been here standing in this pulpit many times when I did not feel that I could preach. I did not, some, there's been a couple of times I didn't feel physically that I could stand here, and yet God upheld me. And I will tell you, I know that there have been times when I've gotten in the way. And I mess it up, but, but praise God, when I preach in the liberty of my calling, that's because God upholds me. God, if he upholds you, you can get the job done. Now, I've known men that I didn't think, based on the evidence, were really called to preach. And they've struggled all of their lives. I can't imagine trying to stand here before you and not having the unction of the Holy Spirit. Because... If I'm not upheld by God, I can't do it. But now, here we're talking about, as they say, a horse of a different color. We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. How is it that God upholds the Son? Well, God the Father upholds God the Son because God the Son is God. <laughs> you see, I and my Father are one, he says. 
And it goes back to what I said earlier. I can't rightly divide. I can't find the dividing point to, to explain to you or even to understand and comprehend in my own mind exactly what happened on the cross. Because as I read the, 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 the account, I read that God the Father forsook His Son. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And yet in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 19, we read that God was in Christ. Reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them as he hung there on the cross. I, I can't explain it all, but I can tell you this. I know the Bible teaches that God the Father upholds the, the Son because the Son is God. He is God. And notice it also says, I have put my spirit upon him. The Spirit of God was placed upon Christ. And yet again, they were the same. <laughs> Due to the constraints of time, we will stop the message here. But please join us tomorrow for the conclusion of this message. If you would like to subscribe to our website, please go to www.zionpbc.com and sign up for email updates. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact the church at zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. That's Z-I-O-N-P-B-C-1847 at gmail.com. Or you can email me directly at jchrismccool at gmail.com. That's the letter J-C-H-R-I-S-M-C-C-O-O-L at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. May the Lord bless you is my prayer. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. 